We're going to start reading in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. But according to His promise, we are looking for the new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless. So let's look at this. In verse 13, he says, But according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. This new heavens and new earth is actually a, a fairly common thing, often speaking of the, the uh, millennial kingdom, the millennial kingdom that will come. That's just, this is a thousand-year reign. And, and uh, it's been pointed out to me that not all theologians agree with this. Uh, uh, and if I could just kindly say that, that not all theologians agree on anything or on very few things. I guess they probably agree on some. But, um, uh, but anyway, that, 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 uh, there's this millennial, this period of, of millennial reign. And, and um, before, before I, I particularly get into that, I want to just read a portion that Paul is talking about it's not, not that it's referring to the same thing, but it's an interesting passage much nonetheless, and I'll show you the analogy. In Acts chapter 24, verse 14, Acts 24, 14, I'll start reading that, and it says, But this I admit to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I do serve the God of our fathers, believing everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, that there shall certainly be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience, both before God and before men. So Paul is, is giving a defense, and he says, I admit to you uh, this, this way, he's speaking about uh, um, uh, this, this seeking of, of Jesus, uh, he says that you refer to it as a sect. This is what he's telling them. You refer to it as a sect. He says, but I do seek it, but I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and the, written in the prophets. In other words, I believe everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Tanakh, everything in the Old Testament, everything in the law, everything in the prophets. Uh, usually they refer to it as the law and the prophets or sometimes the law, the prophets, and the songs. And, and, uh, uh, he says, I believe everything. I want you to think about that for a moment. Don't lose that. Paul said, I believe everything that's written in the Scriptures. We know that our Bible, our Old Testament, is exactly the same as the Jewish Bible. We have Because we have documents that date back, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found in like the 19, 1940s, that... that uh, uh, they date back, these documents date back from before the time of Jesus, before the first century. And we have the documents and we can see every book of our Old Testament is in there except for the book of Esther. And not just one copy, multiple, multiple parchments, multiple passages over and over again. And we, so we know that exactly what Paul had and he was referring to is exactly what we have. And Paul said, I believe everything, everything. He says, I serve the God of our fathers, and I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. I believe everything. 
And I will tell you personally, I believe everything that is written in the Word of God. Everything. I know there's plenty of people that don't want to believe this portion and don't want to believe that portion. I believe it all. Now, my interpretation may change over time. As people teach me, as I learn more, and, and uh, 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 I certainly don't say that I always have the right interpretation. That may change, but as far as the Word of God, it does not change. That is, that is exactly the Word of God. Paul says, I believe everything that's written there. He says, I have a hope in God, which these men cherish themselves, meaning these, these Jewish leaders that are coming against him, that there shall certainly be a resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked. Paul believes in a resurrection. So if you do not believe in Jesus risen from the dead, that is a big problem. If you don't, do not believe that Jesus has risen from the dead, you've got to write to me. Write to tour at drjamestour.org. Tour at drjamestour.org. Let me get together with you and, and uh, explain this to you, has, how Jesus Christ has written, risen from the dead. But he's, Paul's not just referring to this. Paul's referring to the resurrection of all believers and even unbelievers, because the Bible says the unbelievers, are they too will be resurrected and they will go to everlasting judgment. The believers will go to everlasting life. He says, I believe this. Paul said, I believe this. And you say, well, how can such an educated man believe this? Well, maybe because he's smarter than you. Uh, uh, maybe because he understands the power of God's word. Maybe that's why. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe you're not as smart as, as, as you think you are. Did, did you get 100 on every exam when you went through school? Probably not. So obviously you're wrong on some things. You're probably wrong here too. If you don't embrace this, I'm telling you this is true. The word of God is true. And he says in verse 16 of Acts chapter 24, In view of this, I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God and before men. In view of this, in view of what? In view of what? He says in view of the fact that there's been a resurrection from the dead, and these people are also going to rise from the dead, and in view of the fact that, that uh, uh, this, these things that are promised in the Word of God are going to result in a resurrection, there are things that are coming. And these things that are coming help us to walk uprightly, that we can't just live as we want to live. There is going to be a day of accounting here. And this is what this portion is talking about, that we're supposed to live spotless and blameless in light of these things, that there is going to be, Jesus is going to return. And so... When you look back in Second Peter, he says, "But according to his promise, we are Second Peter verse chapter three verse thirteen. But according to his promise, God has promised this. Now, God doesn't have to say, "I promise." His word is enough. His word is a promise. When God speaks it, it has to happen. Embedded within that, it is inherently a promise. When God's word says it, when God speaks it, the universe will come into conformity. It is not so much that God is predicting the future. That's not what we're talking about. It's not that, wow, wow, the, the word of God was really predicted here. I mean, really made predictions of the future. That's not what he's talking about. The word of God defined the future. The word of God defined what would happen in the universe. That's what he's saying. He says, but according to his promise... We are looking for a new heavens, a, a new heavens and a new earth. These things, the old things are going to be done away with, and new things are going to come. And so if you look, if you look in, uh, um, in, in uh, uh, 
Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 65. Let's look, look at Isaiah chapter 65, and we're going to start reading from verse 17. So you will look at some of the promises, the very types of promises that Paul himself was believing, that Paul speaks to and that he's believing. In Isaiah chapter 65, verse 17, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. So you see, this is where, where Peter got this. This is how Peter understands this to write this that's going to become the basis of our New Testament in his epistle because he had already read the book of Isaiah. He was obviously a reader, a studier of the book of Isaiah. For behold, he says, Isaiah 65, 17, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things will not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. And there will no longer be heard in her the voice of weeping and the sound of crying. No longer will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days. For the youth will die at the age of 100. And the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. They will build houses and inhabit them. They will also plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and another inhabit. They will not plant and another eat. For as the lifetime of a tree, so will be the days of people. And my chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain or bear children for calamity. For, their, for, for they are the offspring of those blessed of the Lord, and their descendants with them. It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will graze together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and, and, and dust will be the serpent's food. They will, no, uh, they will do no evil or harm in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. I mean, this is the picture of what we're talking about. This is the new heavens and the new earth. It is going to be a grand place. We will go over in a minute some of the things that are, that are coming in this new heavens and the new earth. But look now in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, uh, let's turn to Revelation chapter, it, well, let me just mention in Revelation chapter 16 through 19, it talks about the tribulation. Prior to this, the tribulation will occur where there will be great torment on the earth. But after the tribulation, if you look in Revelation chapter 19, Revelation chapter 19, reading from verse 11, Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and he wages war. His eyes are a flaming fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name, uh, he has a, na a name written on him, which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, are following him on white horses. From his mouth come sharp swords, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he, will, uh, and he who treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, and on his robe 
and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So this talks about Jesus' coming in his millennial kingdom. So after the seven years of tribulation, Jesus will come and set up the new heavens and the new earth, this millennial kingdom. You say, well, wow, that's hard to believe. Well, Paul believed it. Paul embraced every bit of it. He says, I embrace every bit of the law, meaning the first five books of the Old Testament, and the prophets, uh, meaning that all these prophetic writings, which include the prophet Isaiah. And now in Revelation, we get this other picture of what it's going to be like when Jesus comes. Turn over the page to Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, reading from verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. And they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. So this is what they're talking about. They're talking about this millennial reign, this millennial reign that we've been talking about. So we see it in the here in Second Peter. We see it in Isaiah prophesied. We see it in Revelation. In the book of Revelation, how it's prophesied for us that Jesus is going to come and judge. And so there, these, there are these amazing promises, these amazing promises that are given to us. So let me summarize these promises. And, and there's verses on every one of these. Uh, uh, Jesus is going to rule on the earth for a thousand years. He's going to rule the world from Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. He's going to rule the world from Jerusalem. There's going to be a highway of holiness that leads to Jerusalem. There's going to be world peace, world peace during that thousand-year reign. Uh, the, uh, 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 Jesus will also be our shepherd. Peace is going to exist among the animals. Uh, peace between animals and mankind. It's going to be very much like before the flood. How could, how could Noah call all these animals? Didn't the, the lions kind of want to eat the other animals on, 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 on the ark? Didn't the lions want to kill Noah? Uh, no, there's going to be peace between people and animals because we see actually uh, after the flood, after the flood, I, I think it's like in, in, in Genesis chapter 9, verse 5, something like that, that it, it says, now, ana now animals will also kill people and God's going to uh, hold them responsible for that. But, but everything changed after the flood. It's going to go back to like it was before the flood. Vegetation on earth is really going to flourish. Uh, uh, believers will enjoy long lives. Uh, they're going to have very long lives. Uh, you say, well, people can't live much past 100. How do you know that? How do you know that? I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering. You, you know, there, there's, there's documented lives in the Bible that, that are extending 6, 700, 800, 900, even over 900 years. And you say, well, people can't live 900 years. I'm just wondering, on what, on what scientific basis do you say that? What if the telomeres that are at the end of the frayed ends of DNA would never, would never fray? Then what? Then what? Then would people live? I'm, I'm just wondering how you get your knowledge. Certainly today, it's going to be very unusual for a person to live past 120. But how do you know in the future that God can't make it like it was in the past? How do you know that God can't just turn this thing around? 
And, and so uh, um, there's a lot of science out there and a lot of things we don't know. But people who study age and study this longevity of life, many of them will confess to you that, that they're not sure why we're aging, why we age. They, they, they connect it with this fraying of the ends of these telomeres. But why is this happening? Why is this occurring? What if there were no enzymes that are going to start inducing that? What if you didn't have such extensive oxidative damage? Then what? Then you could probably live much longer. And then also, uh, suffering is going to cease for believers, and unbelievers will continue to be allowed to sin. In the, in the, in the, uh, in the millennial kingdom, unbelievers will continue to be allowed to sin. So in that millennial kingdom, there's going to be a time uh, of uh, unknown and incredible blessing. Uh, the scripture teaches us that... that, that uh, the saints of the ages will initially be allowed uh, to be there. So what's going to happen is those who have died in Christ in the past will live, will, will come alive again as immortal bodies. Those who are still on earth at that time will have mortal bodies. And in their mortal bodies, they will continue to have children. They will continue to bear children. And then during that kingdom, the mortal believers will have children. These new children will be born, and during that kingdom, they'll, they'll uh, need to make a decision for Jesus as to whether, whether uh, they receive him as, as their Savior, uh, just as their parents did, or they're going to face an eternity in hell. But while they remain on earth, they can still sin, and those who sin will be punished and judged. You know, it's going to be amazing that even in that millennial kingdom, that, that people will still be sinning. Uh, uh, that, that mortal, mortal people will still be not receiving Jesus at that time. But this is what he's talking about. He's speaking about this new kingdom. So if you turn back to 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter, chapter 3, verse 13. He says, but according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, I'm looking forward to it, Peter says. I am looking forward to this new heavens and this new earth. If the, if the seven years of tribulation comes and if I live physically into it, fine, I'll live physically into it. Or if, if, if uh, uh, I leave this earth, I will come back as an immortal uh, uh, being. I will be resurrected and come back in that way. And this is the first resurrection for those who are in Christ, uh, uh, resurrected. Verse 15, and regarding the patience, I'm sorry, verse 14 of Second Peter chapter 3, verse 14. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless. We talked about this last week. When we are looking toward the future, when we are looking toward these things, what happens is that it causes us to walk uprightly. This is why we should never lose sight of what's coming, of, of, of what's ahead of us, that Jesus Christ is coming back again. He's coming back again. He's going to return. And, and uh, we're never to lose sight of that. He is returning. There will be a day of judgment. There is a way of reward. And how we live our lives here on this earth will determine what eternity will be like for us. It is going to be closely coupled to how we live our life here on earth. Yes, there are deathbed conversions. My father had a deathbed conversion. That is not the best way. The best way is to receive the Lord as early as possible as you can and walk with Him and, and just continue to serve Him because as we serve Him, these things are recognized and they will not be forgotten. Every good work that you do in service to the Lord, it will never, ever, ever be forgotten. 
you will have all of these things. And he says you're to be walking uh, 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 diligently to be found, uh, uh, be diligent uh, to be found in him in peace, spotless and blameless. You know, one of the ways to separate us from God is to sin. If you are a believer in Christ, you're not going to lose your salvation, but the sense of his presence will become separated if you continue in sin. It will become separated. Sin is nothing to mess around with. So this feeling like we can do whatever we want. You can't do whatever you want without consequences. It will affect this life here and now, and it will affect the future for you as well. Double hit. It's going to affect your, future, your, your life here and now. It's going to affect your children. It's going to affect your families. It's going to affect your coworkers. Your sin affects people around you. We live as a community. We are together in this. When people sin, it affects our entire society. But then, it, also, it will affect our future. So now look in, in uh, 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 2 Peter chapter 3, verse, verse 16. Uh, I'm sorry, verse 15. And regard the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. And also in all his letters, speaking of them as these things in which some things are hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do the rest of the scriptures to their own destruction. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Je Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and in the day of eternity. So in verse 15, he says, uh, um, and regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. God is patient and regard it as salvation. Salvation for the lost is such a big thing in God's view. It is such a big thing. And we need to pray. I need to pray. Lord, give me. Give me salvations. Lord, let me see salvations. Lord, let me participate in people getting saved. Now, not everybody is an evangelist, but everybody is to be sowing seeds. You sow seeds into people's lives, and then other people come and and, and maybe better at getting them to, to make a confession to come on into the kingdom, and then other people are better at discipling them. These things happen. We, are, we all have a, a part in this. We all have a role in this. But God is very interested in salvation. He is patient for salvation. He says in regard this, His patience as, as, uh, of the Lord is salvation, just as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote. So he calls Paul a beloved brother. You know, Paul once called Peter out. In, in, if you look in Galatians chapter 5, Galatians, I'm sorry, not Galatians chapter 5, this is going to be Galatians chapter 2. Galatians chapter 2, what happened was, was uh, um, Peter visited Paul in Antioch. Antioch was Paul's home church. It was a church that was made up of unbelievers in leadership. And Paul was, was, was uh, uh, kind of started this church and was part of this church, and they sent him out from Antioch. Peter came to visit. He was sent by James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, to visit the church in Antioch. And Peter got to know these, the, the, these Gentiles, and everything was great. And then James started sending other people there. Uh, uh, people were sent, and other Jews there, and Peter 
stopped fellowshipping, stopped eating with the Gentiles and thought, I can't do this. You know, these other Jews are going to be upset with me because Jews apparently didn't sit with Gentiles to eat. And so Paul called them out on it. Paul called them a hypocrite in front of everybody because Paul talks about when, when, when elders sin, I mean, sometimes you have to deal with it publicly. And he called them out. But in spite of that, here, Peter is referring to Paul as a beloved brother. So it's not that Peter, we can see Peter is not holding resentment for being called out. Peter needed to be called out. So if you look in Galatians chapter 2, reading from verse 11, and remember Cephas is another one of Peter's names. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof fearing the party of the circumcision, meaning fearing the Jewish people. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. And the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like a Jew, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? He called them out on it. He said, you're, 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 you're not fellowshipping with these people because they're Gentiles. You think there's some, something inherently uh, wrong with them. And so Paul was actually uh, 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 one of the first people that you see uh, uh, pushing for the social justice uh, in, 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 in the church. I mean, Paul was really pushing for it, and he called out their hypocrisy. Paul called out their hypocrisy, and the hypocrisy of Peter, and then the others that started following him in it. And so when we go back to 2 Peter chapter chapter um, 15, it says, and regard the patience of the Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul. So he called him a beloved brother. So in other words, you may get you may get called out in church in the sense that you may feel the pastor is preaching to you. I doubt if he's preaching only to you, but even if he were, so what? So what are you going to do? You're going to have a little hissy fit and get up and leave and go to another church? Is that what you're going to do? Lots of people do that. And then what happens is they go to the other church and, and after, after a while they feel the pastors saying things that, that are condemning them as well and they want to go to another church. Well, this is what they're talking about. Just because you, even if you should get openly reproved, openly corrected, he says, it doesn't mean that you leave. It doesn't mean that you leave. He considered him a beloved brother. We get over these things. We are the body of Christ. Don't take this to the point of, of, of uh, t- take it to the point of correction, but don't take it to the point of saying, I'm going to leave. I'm not going to have anything to do with these people. Because if you've got a problem in your life, God's going to continue to remind, that of, remind you of that if you continue to leave, and you say, well, I'm not going to church anymore. Well, now you're going to have a lot more problems in your life. For the unbelievers, very important to be, to, to get saved. If you do not know the Lord, please contact me, tour at drjamestour.org. Contact me. I will share the truth of the scriptures with you. You'll get saved that very same day. Just reach out to me. And so he says, he says, Paul does this, but Paul, Paul he's, he's a good guy. He says, according to the wisdom given him, wrote to you. He says, Paul is a wise man. He has a lot of wisdom as he wrote to you. So remember, Peter is writing to these five churches. One of the five churches is, Galatia, is the church in Galatia. 
It says in, in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 that he's writing one of the five churches. So we know that Paul already wrote a letter to the Galatians uh, much earlier on than this. And he says, Paul already wrote to you. So this is what he's documenting. And this letter to the Galatians, it is highly unlikely that that letter to the Galatians only remained to the Galatians because, remember, these would become encyclicals. They would share it all around. And so he says he wrote to you. So this is what he's referring to. And then he says in verse 16, as also in all his letters, in all his letters. So here he's saying he's written all of these letters. He is, he is substantiating all the letters of Paul. As he's written in all his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which the untaught and unstable distort, as they do also the rest of scriptures of the scriptures to their own destruction. So here, Peter is equating, he is equating the, the writings of Paul to the rest of all the scriptures, meaning the scriptures, meaning the Old Testament at that time, meaning the Tanakh. He is elevating the, 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 uh, uh, the writings of Paul to an equal standing with the Old Testament scriptures. Now, some will argue that it wasn't until the third century some council that, that somehow canonized this, that made Paul's writing scriptures. Not so. As soon as these things were written, they were scripture. They were scripture right from when they were written. Even before anybody ever read them, they were scripture because it was the word of God. It, was, it wasn't that it became the word of God when some council in, 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 in 325 started to, to uh, uh, recognize this. No, long before the council. This was scripture. So this thing, well, you know, the Council of Nicaea didn't start pulling these things together or some council until the, the third century. Nonsense. That is nonsense. It was scripture from the moment it was written because God spoke it to Paul. Listen, whether, whether uh, um, you know, I, I don't need a student in elementary school to affirm my research work and tell me, yeah, you know, Dr. Tour's research work, that's really good research. No, an elementary school teacher has no impact on, on, on my work. What people think of God's word has no impact on whether it's the word of God or not. It was the word of God as soon as it was recorded. It was the word of God as soon as it was spoken to Paul, even before his pen touched the paper. It was the word of God. When it touched the paper, it became scripture. That nanosecond that it touched the paper, every one of those letters, every one of them, every dot on every I, every period, every jot, every tittle, it was scripture from that moment. And he equates this with scripture. This is the word of God. It's not people affirming it that makes it the word of God. It's the word of God from that moment. If people want to say, okay, you know, we affirm it to the extent that this is good for everybody, fine. But it is scripture, it always was scripture. And he affirms it right here in all his letters, speaking in them, in which some things are hard to understand. Some people think that, that Peter is giving Paul a jab here. I mean, come on, so much in the scripture is hard to understand. Uh, uh, Dr. Boyd was just asking me what my interpretation was on the book of Job, and I gave him my chemist's interpretation of the book of Job because I'm not a theologian. And he says, okay, well, that's, you know, that's a... That's a light, cursory explanation. And that's all it is. But, but uh, uh, um, so some things are hard to understand. He says there's many layers. There's many layers. And I'm sure there are. There's many layers to everything. The scriptures can be hard to understand. 
I personally find Peter's writings much harder to understand than Paul's writings. I do. I think Peter needs a mirror. I think Peter needs to needs to get James's mirror and look in the mirror. And this, you know, because Peter, in fact, his writings are to me more confusing than Paul's writings. Paul was a professor. Paul was a rabbi. Paul was a teacher. He knew in my view, a little bit better on how to communicate things. Peter, I think, is harder to understand than Paul. But anyway, uh, um, uh, that, that's for another day, I suppose. But he says, and some things are hard to understand, that untaught and unstable distort as they do the rest of the Scriptures to their own destructions. I mean, some people intentionally distort the Scriptures. They're intentionally distorting it. Verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and from your own steadfastness. You and I have a responsibility. Because we know these things, we have a responsibility. To whom much is given, much is expected, the scriptures tell us. To whom much is given. The more instruction we have, the more responsible we are for these things. We can't, we can't just argue that, hey, I didn't know. No, as we're taught these things, we bear more responsibility. When I share the scriptures with you, when I share the plan of salvation with you, you now bear more responsibility. He says in verse 18, But grow in, gra in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. He says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to notice, he doesn't just say, Boy, I, I, I hope you grow. He's, I hope you grow in, in, in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Wouldn't it be a good thing if you would grow? He didn't put it that way. This is, this is not an indicative. This is an imperative. He says, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is a command. This is a command. This is a command that's right there in the New Testament. You and I bear responsibility to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And you cannot grow in knowledge and in grace without studying. You, you want to grow in knowledge? Just, just, you, know, you know, tell me, just, do, you, do you go to class? Do you study for your classes? Or do you just kind of get better at a subject? I mean, tell me. Do you just kind of, you, you sign up for organic chemistry and then you just only go in and take the exams? No, you have to study it. It's just like that in the Word of God. You grow in knowledge through this study. And you grow in grace. You grow in this grace as you uh, walk with the Lord. There is more grace. As you walk with the Lord and walk in faith, you grow in your faith. And there is more grace. There's grace upon grace. The more, the more we go through this. And he says, To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So that finishes the epistles of First and Second Peter, which are the third and fourth of the Messianic epistles. We had already covered formally in, this, in these classes the book of Hebrews a few years ago and the, the book of, of James several years before that. So there's Hebrews, James, first and second Peter. Those are four of the five uh, epistles that were written specifically to the Messianic Jews, to the Jewish believers, and there's one last epistle that we are going to go into next, and we'll start in it next week, and that's the epistle according to Jude. That's the epistle according to Jude. That is the book, that's the, the one chapter book, so, so we won't be in it long, just for a few weeks. And that's the, right before the book of Revelation, and Jude is the brother of, of the half-brother of Jesus, and uh, we'll read about this, but again, this is 
this is written to the 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 uh, uh, Messianic Jews, and so this would be the fifth of the Messianic epistles, uh, um, and then we will wrap that up. Let's pray. Abba Father, I thank and I praise you for your mercies and your grace. You are so good. Blessed be your name, O Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord Jesus. Thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Lord, that your word is inspired and true from the moment it's written. Thank you, Lord, that the writings of the apostles, the writings of these prophets and apostles, is just right on par with the writings of the Old Testament scriptures. Thank you, Lord, for revealing that to us. Thank you, Lord, for the new heavens and new earth that you have planned. Let us, therefore, live in the light of eternity, knowing that Jesus is going to return, knowing that these things will come and we will appear before our Lord. Father, I pray that you would take our lives and let us live for you. Let us live all the more for you. Blessed be your name. Father, I pray for these young people, that if there be any unbelievers among them, that you would save souls. Lord, turn them to you. Save souls, I pray. Let Jesus Christ be glorified. Father, I pray that I'd see a salvation today. Let me see that, O Lord. And Father, I pray that you would take these young people who know you and build them up firm in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they would grow in grace and in knowledge. And as many of them will be leaving now for the summer, Lord, protect them, I pray. Lead them back safely. And if they're grad graduating, use them in their new positions, in their graduate schools, professional schools, or in their jobs. Lead them safely, I pray. Father, protect them in Jesus' name. The blood of Jesus be over them. Protect them in the name of Jesus. And Lord, I commit them to you that they would grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ.